0: The Republicans to wake up is we're, we're, the Republican Party right now is not
1: led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be called the truth. Um we have to do it live.
0: Now from
1: the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate
0: filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Thanks for joining me for this podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Listeners support this program, and I'm very grateful. Today, I'd like to thank Mary Gruber, Gary Batterson, and Marilyn Ryan. They are voluntary subscribers to the PBC Show. Those voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. Share the program with your friends. It's free. But if you're inclined to and able to support us, I'm much obliged. The link is on the homepage at peterbcollins.com. Just click on You Can Help, and the options are right there for you. In just a moment or two, we're going to be joined by Dr. Paul LaRudy, one of the founders of the Free Palestine Movement, and he was one of the activists on the ships that were steaming for Gaza when they were intercepted by Israeli helicopters and gunboats on May 31st. You'll hear his gripping, first-person account of what occurred there, and we'll also talk about the breakthroughs uh, in uh, breaking down the Israeli blockade. But before Dr. LaRudy joins us, I want to take a moment to dedicate this program to Helen Thomas, the dean of the White House Press Corps, been serving since the Kennedy administration in the early 1960s, a woman who was never intimidated by the powerful men she has covered. She took on LBJ, she took on Nixon, she uh, asked provocative questions of Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Poppy Bush, Clinton, and was particularly a thorn in the side of George W. Bush. And with the change of administrations, she didn't change her style. She provoked and performed her duties as a quizzical, skeptical journalist on a daily basis. Yes, even with President Obama. And Helen Thomas made some comments recently that have been widely circulated that I would agree were intemperate, but her frustration at Israel's behavior, its take-no-prisoners-no-holds-barred approach to imprisoning the Palestinians in Gaza and highly restricting the lives and movements of those in the West Bank, led her to make a comment about, well, why don't the Jews just go back to Poland and the United States and other countries where they came from. And in a nation that is so closely allied with the interests of Israel that many people can't make a distinction between American interests and Israeli interests, the boom was lowered, and Helen Thomas this week has announced her retirement. Now, she's certainly earned that. She's 89, will be 90 in August, I believe. but I deplore the circumstances under which she is departing. And I had an interesting opportunity in May when I attended the National Nurses United Conference in Washington to see her speak. She had received an award from the Nurses Union for her unwavering commitment to the truth and to supporting the interests of the people who don't have access to the rich and powerful. And she was all there. I mean, she has undiminished mental capacity, a highly verbal woman, despite her diminutive stature, a giant in what used to be called journalism in this country. So, Helen Thomas, thank you. Thank you very much for your service to the country, for the example that you set for many reporters who had the hair and the teeth and the seven figure salaries, but didn't have the guts, often didn't have the balls, to challenge the bullshit that comes out of the press room in the White House, regardless of which party is in power. I love you, Helen thank you so much. Dr. Paul LaRudy joins us, as I mentioned. He's one of the organizers of the Free Palestine Movement. You can visit their website at freepalestinemovement.org. And he has been on a number of these flotillas that started about two years ago, working to break the blockade, the Israeli blockade of the Gaza Strip. And this time it made big news. There was a substantial loss of life. Initially, it was reported that 19 people had died, and uh, fortunately, the death toll was lower than that, a total of nine people, including one a young man with a dual American-Turkish citizenship. And while the loss of life is certainly very painful, and it was hoped that it would be avoided, this led to a shift, and we're going to talk about that with Paul LaRudy today. Paul, thank you for joining me.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me, Peter.
0: Well, and I really appreciate your courage and your leadership in challenging the power of Israel and its major ally, the United States of America, in what is an immoral siege, uh, the way they have blockaded uh, this little strip of Gaza with a million and a half Palestinians uh, struggling for life there. And you have repeatedly challenged this blockade. This, I believe, was your seventh uh, seaborne attempt. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Not me personally, but I think there have been a total of about ten attempts altogether.
0: Ten. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I want to talk about the impact, but first I'd like to get your account of what happened with you, because you were not on the uh, larger ship, uh, the Turkish ship that... uh, was boarded by Israeli forces, you were on a uh, smaller boat
1: Svendoni.
0: Svendoni. Uh, and give us a quick description this is a fifty sixty hundred foot long boat
1: it 's about a hundred feet long and it carried uh, between forty and fifty passengers of a variety of nationalities um, it uh, It included at least ten i think eleven journalists no mm-hmm. so it um, uh, it was the largest uh, passenger vessel after the the uh, Maui Marmara, mm-hmm. uh, and the results were not, obviously, as disastrous as, as on that larger vessel.
0: Right. So, uh, at, at what point uh, did they first go after the Mari Marmara, uh, or was this a simultaneous assault, where this is about 5 a.m. local time, as I understand it, Were you just completely surrounded uh, by Israeli uh, uh, little boats and uh, the helicopters that were hovering overhead?
1: Well, we didn't see the helicopters. Those were, as far as I know, reserved for the larger ships, the cargo ships and the Mavi Marmara. In our case, they it was easy enough to board us with smaller vessels <clears throat> that they had, mm-hmm. and uh, they came for us. As far as I know, maybe first uh, it was before the Mavi Marmara because we didn't hear the call to prayer on, on mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh, it was um, it was uh, dark at the time, and uh, uh, I think uh, it, we were the Mavi Marmara anyway, and they boarded us on the small boats. I was, I went downstairs to uh, get something from my bag, and as I came out, they were actually boarding the boat on the rear, Mm -hmm. and going up the stairs. And I also wanted to go up the stairs to defend the wheelhouse, so I just got in line with them. And one of them tried to shove me aside, but then uh, after I shoved my way in, they didn't bother me, as I just stayed in line with the rest of the soldiers, and went up to the wheelhouse, and they did their thing and I did mine, which was to uh, lock arms with everybody else there and try to prevent entry to the wheelhouse. They uh, smashed at least one and maybe more than one window of the wheelhouse, and they threw in sound bombs and tear gas, and they used uh, tasers. I know, there were no really serious injuries. I was a little concerned for my ear because I'm a piano technician because a couple of sound bombs went off in an enclosed space Mm -hmm. about two feet away from my right ear, and I could feel it. Uh, And I was tased twice on the left arm, and then I got a nasty bruise on my left leg with a baton. But eventually, they overpowered uh, uh, us all, Mm -hmm. Uh, put... Uh, twist, uh, what do you call it, uh, nylon ties, on our hands to basically handcuff us. And then, um, you know, it was fairly quiet after that, uh, actually too quiet for me.
0: So mm-hmm. Now, the use of these concussion grenades, what, what's your reaction to that? Did you feel that it was more than just a, a sound bomb that was designed to uh, scare you?
1: No, I, I personally have seen a lot of those in the West Bank, and uh, those those things are pretty innocuous as long as the sound doesn't scare you. If it goes off too close to your ear, it's a problem. If it uh, lands directly on your skin, it can burn you. But mm-hmm. they're they're really not very dangerous.
0: Okay. And um, I understand at one point that you pleaded with your captors to ease the, uh, the straps that they were using to handcuff you, and then, in fact, you jumped overboard. Is, is that a correct report?
1: Well, the order is a, is a bit different. Okay. Uh, there, the restraints on my wrists came much later after I was on the land. Uh, the, the restraints that I had on the ship were not at all. And uh, in fact, they were so loose that I could slip my hand out, and which is why I didn't tell anyone uh, that, that I could slip my hand out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so I actually slipped away after that was done, and I hid in between the wheelhouse and the, uh, the water tank so that I could overhear the radio traffic. It was dark at the time, and they didn't spot me there. Uh, I... The, you know, hearing what was going on didn't help very much. A lot of it was in Hebrew, but the English, uh, I could hear the other boats being taken over. And then as it got light, they could see me in that space, and they decided to just leave me there. Uh, and eventually I, um, I left that space uh, and saw the other passengers just kind of lined up on the deck, sitting in the deck chairs, And... Um, I uh, I saw that they had their, their restraints had been removed, so I asked uh, if if that was the case, and they said yes. And so I just removed my hand from the restraints, and the soldiers came after me to put the restraints back on. And I said, "What's going on? You removed them from everybody else. Why do you want them on me?" So they left me alone, and then they told me to sit down, and I wouldn't sit down, uh, and uh, and they left me just. I tried to defy, basically, whatever they were, they were saying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they started to call each individual passenger away. I didn't know what they were doing, probably for questioning and photographing, and I don't know what. And the passengers went, which was totally contrary to what, uh, what I thought we were going to do, which was to resist and not say anything. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, got this idea in my head that one, one way to resist would be to jumped into the sea, and they would, uh, in effect, be forced to retrieve me, because otherwise they'd have a very difficult time explaining why they didn't rescue me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially when it's done in front of uh, 30 or 40 passengers who who watch me do that. And if they were tempted to, to leave me there, I was hoping that my fellow passengers would put up some resistance. So, um, I the first thing I did was to communicate in Greek with a couple of them. My Greek is not great, but it's one language that I was fairly confident that none of the soldiers would understand, and the uh, Greeks with whom I spoke uh, seemed to confirm that they thought it was not a bad idea. So I I stepped over the railing. I was wearing my life jacket. And I waited until the soldiers uh, caught notice of me and that everybody could see me well because I wanted lots of witness. And then I jumped, which was actually the highest I've ever jumped into the water from anywhere.
0: Mm. How, what was the distance?
1: My um, guess is around 20, 25 feet. Uh-huh. It's not a huge height, but for me, that's uh, unusual. Yeah. And, uh then uh, once I was in the water, the boat stopped. I, uh, uh, they apparently called it in and said, what, what should we do? And, uh, and then they called in another ship, uh, looked to me, something like a Coast Guard cutter or something. Uh, and that ship came along and tossed me a life preserver, and I ignored it. Um, they uh, then used a grappling hook, that uh, I grabbed and held so that they wouldn't have multiple times to, to try to use it. And uh, they gave up on the grappling hook, uh, but they tried to use a uh, pole with a hook on it, and I just swam away from it. They uh, used this very maneuverable boat to actually rotate in the water with the side jets but it wasn't enough. As long as you stay near the axis of the of the boat, uh, I was able to swim away from it. And then they put a Zodiac in the water, an inflatable Zodiac, and discovered that these. It took them quite a while to do this. I think they had to inflate it first. And I was swimming away at the time, and they got farther and farther away. And then the. Uh, uh, they discovered that the Zodiac motor didn't work for more than 10 seconds at a time. It, it, something was choking the gas in the,
0: in huh. the motor, I guess. Uh-huh.
1: And they uh, they had to tow it over near me, then use it to uh, get the 10 seconds worth of motor out of it, and they picked me up, and that, that
0: consumed
1: between an hour and an hour and a half of time, and they were very angry, and they made me pay the price.
0: Mhm. Okay. And uh, how did they extract that price, Paul Luridi?
1: Well, the first thing they did was to slam my face down into the bottom of the boat, which is how I got my hand. and then, uh, then they, um, uh, then they um, fastened my uh, legs and arms, and they punched me a little bit, and uh, then they hoisted me up on the ship in a very, very painful manner with, uh, ropes around and, uh, uh, and, um, um, uh, and, uh, I'm sorry. And the, um, uh, so they, they, uh, hoist me up, uh, holding me by the, uh, by the hand restraints, and pulled me up, cu- basically cutting into my wrists, and uh, also with ropes around my uh, underarms, and uh, they cut underneath my arms, and it was, it was very, very painful. It, it felt at one point like they were yanking my arms out of their sockets.
0: Uh-huh. Well, that sounds like one of the stress positions that became a part of the U.S. torture regime
1: yeah it certainly felt like that um, and then they seated me on the on the rear of the uh, the stern of the boat and uh, tied me to uh, something like a mast uh, and I was blindfolded by that time, and they kept me there for between three and a half and four hours uh, and uh, I was both freezing and broiling at the same time because the sun was was uh, beating down on me, but uh, but the, w- the spray on the water was coming on me, and the wind was drying it off, which was evaporating, which caused cold and I, f- I started shaking uncontrollably, and they brought uh, uh, a, uh, they, and they brought a uh, uh, sweatpants to, to put on me I was sitting I was seated on this extremely rough uh, material. Uh, and they tore my pants off me so that my rear end was, was sitting directly on it. The rough material was designed to prevent their combat boots from from slipping on board mm-hmm. so and they told me that the reason that I was sitting there was because I refused and uh, agreed to uh, not cause them any, any more trouble on the way in. I said they, they didn't actually allow me to respond, but uh, I uh, I did tell them that I was not going to give them my name, but mm-hmm. I, when they came back later, I said, uh, there's no reason to cause you any more trouble, I'm not going to jump off the ship or anything. And uh, then they took me below where it was more comfortable, for the remaining, I don't know, between an hour and a half and two hours of
0: the trip. Uh-huh. And, uh, Paul, do I understand that you changed, you legally changed your name so that you were traveling under a passport that wasn't Paul LaRudy, which is likely on a lot of lists uh, in Israeli security?
1: That's correct. I, my uh, passport is in the name of Paul Wilder, and uh, so apparently that caused a mix-up with the U.S. embassy.
0: I see. And did it serve your purpose? In other words, uh, did they at first not connect you to uh, you know, your real file?
1: well i don 't think it really made much difference in this case because i wasn 't attempting to enter Israel
0: anyway yeah
1: uh, and i I had the impression that they really didn 't care very much who i was they, their purpose was to isolate me uh, and anybody else especially who had um, they they were that was only the first what I described was only the first time that they were they were brutal because they became a lot more brutal afterwards. They slammed my head into, into the floor and kicked my head. and uh, all, I mean, they, they did this to me maybe about half a dozen times.
0: Really? This India. is after you arrived at Ashdod?
1: Yes, exactly. huh. And in one case, in, in the, you could say, the last instance, uh, where I was invited by the Greek government to uh, be on their aircraft going back to Greece, the the Israelis tried to separate me from that, and I refused. And uh, I did nonviolent resistance, which means that you, in this case, you allow your body to go limp, makes it difficult for them to transport you, carry you, and all that sort of thing. And when you do that, in the Israeli reaction is to apply as much pain as necessary to force you to to walk. Uh, it didn't work, but they applied lots of pain. And on that occasion, they did it in front of about 30 to 40 of the other passengers who were being processed. And when they heard me screaming, uh, they just erupted, and there was this huge riot at the airport. Mm.
0: Now, Paul, uh, you and I last spoke, and listeners can uh, go for the podcast back in March. uh, You were attending the uh, SABIL conference here in Marin County and you uh, uh, gave me some hints of that you had planned, you and the uh, uh, freedom movement for Gaza. Um, and you had talked about some things that were pretty ambitious, including uh, trying to challenge the Israeli blockade from the air. And uh, you had a few other ideas, but you didn't allude to your tur- Turkish partner, uh, IHH, which has been getting a lot of uh, publicity, some of it critical, over the last week or so. And I'd like to hear a little bit about the history of this alliance and at what point they decided to uh, join your efforts, because certainly um, they brought you uh, a lot of of assets, but also it's clear that those on the Mavi Marmara uh, were not following some of the codes of nonviolent resistance that you just described in your own case.
1: Yes, Um, it was really hard. I mean, IHH was by far the biggest participant in this flotilla, and they became part of it, oh, months ago. Uh, They were one of the major organizers, of which there were four. And uh, it really was hard, uh, considering the number of participants, there were probably more than 30 participating organizations uh, to, to get everyone exactly on the same page as to what the procedures would be. Having said that, um, they had, everyone had agreed to nonviolence. And in the case of the Mavi Marmara, from what I've heard from passengers, uh, they attempted to do that. But the commandos that came shot first and asked questions later and uh, that the reaction to the shooting was not nonviolent, not, not completely nonviolent. And, I mean, obviously they were not prepared to respond with self-defense measures. They didn't have any weapons or, or anything like that or any kind of protection. But they did uh, quite courageously, I thought, try to defend themselves with their bare hands and whatever was at hand. Uh, so, it, um, and let me just comment here that the kinds of things that are being purveyed uh, in other places and that Netanyahu is trying to sell about how these poor Israeli attackers were set upon by the people who were defending themselves, uh, it's absurd. Uh, if this had been Iran, how would we be uh, uh, portraying the same event?
0: Well, indeed, and uh, I want to underscore that this occurred in international waters. And it is, uh, by my definition, an act of piracy. And I've seen people go to great lengths to try to create uh, legal arguments that, frankly, don't hold water, that uh, because Israel is uh, technically uh, considered to be at war with the Palestinians, and that's a questionable assertion, uh, to enforce this blockade to prevent any kind of armaments coming through and already Israel claims claims expansive uh, uh sea rights uh, 20 miles out when the international agreements are at 3 miles and so there's no question that this occurred in international waters and uh, again my strong view is that this is a clear violation of uh, international treaties and once again uh, this is twisted and spun by the Israelis and then echoed by the American corporate media to create a victim scenario. And it is absurd that these uh, invading forces that landed on this ship uh, were somehow, uh, you know, their their rights were violated when some of those individuals took action to uh, try to toss one so- sailor or soldier off the uh, the boat. And that's been widely circulated with uh, pictures and arrows by the Israeli uh, defense ministry and picked up by the U.S. media unquestioning, looped on Fox uh, on a regular basis. And so the, the other thing, Paul, that surfaced in commentary that I heard on day one was alarmist comments from Israelis that the pro-Palestinians, you were called bar- barbarians, by the way, that the barbarians were getting control of the narrative. And that is propaganda speak.
1: <laughs> that, that is a joke, because the first thing they did uh, was to cut us off for two or three days from any kind of means of, uh, of speaking. The, 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 uh, uh, the passengers were incarcerated and we had no outside news of any kind, we didn't have any news about each other, I, was, I and the captain of the Spendoni were kept apart mainly because we, we had wounds that they didn't want the media to be able to photograph and uh, we were kept apart from all the other passengers. We had no idea what was going on uh, outside and no ability to communicate. So Israel had all the cards at that point to dominate the media and and uh, to control all the information. That is really an absurd way of portraying
0: it. Uh, Netanyahu's uh, uh, English-language news conference. Uh, I happen to be in Detroit, and Uncle Charlie insists on having the Fox News channel on at all times. <laughs> and uh, it, it was preposterous. The context was this. We have a Fox News anchor babe, and I don't know her name, and she was getting, quote-unquote, expert commentary from a right-wing talk radio host named Monica Crowley, who, to my knowledge, has no uh, distinction or expertise on the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. And uh, they were busy echoing the Israeli talking points. Then they go for the live cutaway to Netanyahu's commentary. And because the, uh, the you know, non-military aid that you were trying to bring into Gaza, would be under the control of the elected government, which is controlled by Hamas. They just elliptically jump over all of those details and say that you are a pro-Hamas group and that you're not a peace movement. The soundbite written for Netanyahu uh, was, this was not the love boat, this was a hate boat. Now, I'd like you to respond to that because I know you well enough, Paula Rudy, that you're not a hateful person, and that you are passionate and driven to bring justice for the Palestinian people, and that you are, you know, leading that effort by trying to bust this blockade.
1: Well, let me preface that by saying it's, it's not justice just for the Palestinian people. Obviously, the the Palestinian people are one of the m- most egregious victims of injustice, and that's why we concentrate on that. But it's justice for everyone. You cannot achieve justice for Palestinians by means of injustice for anyone else, and that's, that's a rule that applies universally. So we have to keep that perspective in mind, and I have many, many reporters in Israel who feel exactly that way. So, uh, you know, we have to remember that. And, and you have these pictures of of me shaking hands with Ismail Haniyeh as if that's some terrible sin. Well, it's not a sin according to the U.S. State Department or the U.S. Justice Department. And he is a head of state. Uh, he invited us to, to have dinner with him. There's no law against having dinner with a uh, with head of state. And... Uh, we but we have always, always, always said that we do not support any political organization of any kind, no political parties, whether it's Hamas, Fatah, uh the Republicans, the Democrats, or the greens we just we just don't, and, and that's a matter of principle with us, mm hmm so and in the case of the aid that was being delivered, it is not being delivered to Hamas or even to the Hamas government. Granted they control the area, but it's being delivered and it has to be delivered to uh private nonprofit NGOs that will distribute it uh according to their own priorities. So this is this is just pure propaganda.
0: Well and, and then they they move very quickly from linking your efforts to Hamas, uh, call Hamas a terrorist group, then they make the big leap to Iran. And they basically say that uh, if Israel doesn't maintain the civil blockade of Gaza, that Iran will be shipping military supplies in virtually the next day. That That's the argument uh, that they try to create.
1: Well, um, international law does allow for... Uh, combatants, if you will, to control um, the movement of military supplies. But uh, there are a lot of questions that need to be asked in this situation as to who are the combatants and so forth. And who's controlling the supplies that are going into Israel anyway? So um, the uh, in any case, none of that is ever an issue until uh, so far. Uh, we have uh, all of the participants in this flotilla and every single ship that has gone there has been thoroughly inspected, and we have the command that there's, uh, there are going to be no dangerous materials of any kind and no persons that are involved in military activities. All of these things are a requirement. We want to uh, make sure that, that we're, there's no reason. Government authorities have inspected all the boats. There's, uh, in fact, the Israeli um, Defense Ministry spokesperson, Arya Mekel, said on our first voyage that the reason they didn't interfere was because Cyprus had, had inspected our vessels, and they, they trusted the Cypriot authorities uh, to, uh, when, the, when they pronounced us free of anything dangerous single voyage, including this one, has had the same kind of provisions on it from reputable authority. So there's, there's no excuse for this.
0: Now, what about the claim from Netanyahu that uh, some of the Turks who, uh, uh, pre- the, he presumes, were the ones who responded to the Israeli assault uh, by pushing back with uh, the available means, uh, actually got on the flotilla after you departed from Turkey?
1: Um. There are some people, there were also Swedes, who, who boarded the flotilla afterwards. That, as far as I know, all of that was planned in advance, that some people who could, couldn't could make it in time to get on board, nevertheless, uh, came on other vessels and, and boarded later. That's That's not an issue. These are all people who were cleared in advance and... Uh, and we're known to be part of the
0: passenger list. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul, a few days later, um, on this past Saturday, uh, the ship named the Rachel Corey, uh, with uh, a largely Irish contingent, uh, challenged the blockade and submitted to, uh, they acquiesced uh, quietly, apparently, to uh, Israeli interception. And I wanted to just offer this because I was working around the house and I had CNN uh, on and uh, they they just covered this very briefly. But it was fascinating to me that they talked about the name of the ship, the Rachel Corey, and did not give people the context of who Rachel Corey was and why the she, of course, was the American activist who gave her life uh, trying to stop an Israeli bulldozer from destroying a Palestinian home. And I, I thought it was ironic because the very next story was a sad story about an American who died abroad, uh, but under very different circumstances. And this is Natalie Holloway. And that story took on a life of its own in a tabloid uh, kind of way because the cable news channels were kind of competing to see who could, uh, uh, you know, decide who, who the uh, perpetrator of that crime was. And one of the key suspects has been arrested in another country in another case. But it, it just struck me as odd that uh, a girl who died partying in Aruba uh, gets much more attention than uh, a committed peace activist, Rachel Corey, and the legacy uh, that her death contributed to in the naming of this ship that uh, uh, was attempting to uh, challenge the blockade of Gaza.
1: Well, yeah, we we know why that happened. But I want to... uh sound a note of optimism here because the reaction to what happened I think indicates that there is a change in, in U.S. public opinion. The I, I've spoken uh, to a lot of folks who don't normally follow these things and the number of people who turned out at demonstrations uh, in support uh, it's uh, I think it was this was very difficult for Israel and its supporters to spin in a way that caused criticism for other for on the the organizers of the flotilla and from what I can see, an awful lot of the American public is not buying it and uh, the you you mentioned rachel Corey. Uh, I was in uh, I was an ISM volunteer at the same time, in Palestine at the same time as Rachel Corey, although I'd never actually met her face-to-face. And um, after she was killed, I got in touch with George Rishmawi, who was our recoup- recruitment coordinator in, uh, in Palestine, and he reported that recruitment for uh, ISM had quadrupled after her death. Now let's look at what's happening, uh, the the reaction to the Israeli attack on the flotilla. We're now getting all kinds of requests and offers from all over the globe, and I'm leaving in about an hour's time to go to a conference in Beirut where all of this will be discussed among uh, groups and and individuals, who who want to participate in the next flotilla and make it bigger than it ever was before we have an offer already from one uh, major businessman who wants to finance an entire ship on by himself i mean the the, the response is incredible now you've heard of course from erdogan uh the uh the prime turkish
0: min- prime minister huh? right
1: uh, who said that he wants to go personally and wants to uh Take, um, uh, ships and I mean they're just the, the response from over, all over the world is unbelievable and
0: I well and, and Egypt has responded by uh, partially opening uh, the uh, uh, border at Rafa and announcing that they plan to keep it open at least uh, on a restricted basis that they are acknowledging that the uh, Israeli blockade of Gaza has been a, a political failure and a human rights debacle
1: Well, Peter, you were with us from the very beginning when the first two boats went into Gaza almost two years ago. And you know what has happened since then with the other boats, about half of which never got in, and the flotilla um, expands that number. But you also have the three attempts of uh, George Galloway's Viva Palestina. You have the Gaza Freedom March. You have uh, the Code Pink uh, uh, attempts to get in uh, many times successfully. And now you have this flotilla. What's happened is that those two tiny boats two years ago have resulted in this cascade of pent-up frustration taking, taking form in civil civilian action to do what our governments have not done in 62 years, and that is to try to restore some justice situation there are eight million Palestinians who are homeless and the remaining less than uh, the the remaining three million are living under really onerous Israeli occupation this is ethnic cleansing to anybody who's not completely blind and it's got to stop and I think the people of the world are saying that it has to stop and they're willing to send the boats and the aircraft and, and the, the trucks and, and go on foot, if necessary, in order to bring this to an end. And Israel better take heed, because now this is turning into a juggernaut that they will not be able to stop. And the more they try to stop it with repressive measures, the more it's going to backfire to them, and they're going to find themselves in a corner that they can't get out of. They better find a, another way to do
0: it. Well, Paul, uh, I just have to tell you how proud I am to know you and to see the hard work and your determination. Uh, commitments to nonviolence uh, have have stood, I think, pretty firm, uh, with a couple of exceptions, and you have set an example for how to challenge uh, a, a very powerful political and military force when they're clearly uh, operating outside of moral boundaries. And uh, I applaud you and uh, many people who I met at the Sabil Conference. There's a community of people with conscience and, and with a commitment to, uh, to really do what is right and to uh, try to set uh, an appropriate moral example. And it's so gratifying to see the efforts paying off. Uh, I certainly am saddened by the loss of life. And uh, by that uh, departure from the the nonviolent approach, uh, I don't believe that uh, it was uh, you know purely intentional or premeditated, um, but uh, it is uh, somewhat regrettable nonetheless. Putting that aside, uh, it does seem that uh, this has really caused uh, a major change, and that Israel is being forced uh, to reevaluate its posture. And with the uh, cancellation of the Obama-Netanyahu meeting that was supposed to occur on the day following this uh, illegal intervention in international waters, um, uh, we're seeing the Obama administration force its policies. And on that uh, aspect, I want to ask you where my listeners should direct their activist efforts. A. Do you believe that it's worthwhile fighting for a meaningful international investigation, or will it just get goldstoned, if I can use that as a phrase? And number two, uh, where can they apply their uh, lobbying efforts and contacts with American elected officials uh, to shift U.S. policy into more of a, an honest broker for peace?
1: Yes. Um, the Barbara Lee came out with a statement yesterday um in support of opening the the borders of Gaza ending the blockade that is largely a result of uh, constituent uh, pressure besides uh, Barbara's own uh, progressive standing and but the it is constituent pressure that's going to make a difference it is uh, everyone. This is a, uh, what we're doing now with the flotilla is the result of the efforts of a lot of individuals, civilians working together. What we can do now is to pressure our government, to uh, to write letters to to media, and to get involved with groups that are actually organizing. And there's no shortage of them. You can go to our website, uh, FreePalestineMovement.org. And uh, you'll find links there, and uh, it'll get you started on all sorts of ways that you can do letter-writing campaigns and become join committees and so forth and do fundraising. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that people can be involved.
0: And, Paul, we're going to wrap up here because I want you to make that flight to Beirut and uh, help uh, plan the next phase of your efforts uh, without asking you to broach any security or confidentiality. Uh, What do you have planned next uh, to bring additional pressure on Israel to end the blockade of Gaza?
1: Well, we've got all kinds of possibilities. One is a direct follow-up on the flotilla, namely to pressure Israel to release the boats. And now that they've inspected the cargo, there's no excuse for not letting that cargo go into Gaza directly by sea, because it's not going to stop off any threatening materials. The... uh, so we're going to pressure them on those those issues, but we're also going to plan for new flotillas. And as you mentioned, we are go- we are planning for an aircraft. We're also planning for Palestinian uh, Palestinians who have citizenship in other countries to uh, fly into to basically to flood Tel Aviv Airport by flying in there. They generally are not permitted to enter the country, but they want to make a statement. They want to go to their homes. They haven't seen their homes in sometimes 40 years, uh, sometimes more than 60 years, and and they want to go to their homes, and they want to address... So, So these are all... These are all efforts uh, and ideas that are in the works now, some of them more advanced than others, and we're going to be discussing all of that, and we're probably going to be implementing nearly every idea that comes up in one form or another.
0: And finally, Paul, um, how's your health?
1: The health is fine. I'm only 64 years old, so I recover quickly, and uh, you know how youth uh, bounces back. Um, and I want to commend you also, uh, Peter, because you are the vanguard of the kind of media that we need and that hopefully, hopefully we'll see more of. I think, in fact, other, other members of the media are beginning to, to uh, give a, a somewhat more balanced uh, uh, picture of what's going on. It's a long road, and I'm not expecting any miracles from uh, Fox News soon. <laughs> but, uh, but well, thank you. It's really um, uh, important to all of us for you to be there.
0: Well, Paul, uh, I, I accept that, but uh, with great humility, because um, I'm simply uh, allowing people like you to have your voices heard. And it's because you raise your voice, because you're thoughtful and committed, that uh, your efforts are starting to really build traction, and I think we uh, we have more breakthroughs coming. And I'm I'm deeply touched by that. And uh, I hope you have safe travels and uh, successful efforts in confronting Israel on the blockade. Thank you very much, Peter. Dr. Paul LaRudy, go to freepalestinemovement.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your comments are welcome by Peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Betray.